Today should be fun. We're going to speak about the Indo-European thing. Uh, as a short preface, until the Europeans came to India, they came first as traders, of course, in the whole age of exploration, and for some centuries were merely trading. In fact, uh, England had a policy that missionaries were not allowed on their trading ships the East India Trading Company because they thought religion would just kind of like mess up their relations with their clients. And later when there, was, there were religious revivals in England and things changed and England got more power in India, they started proselytizing. In any case, until the English, until the Europeans came, for thousands of years people in India assumed that this is our country, we've always lived here, we have this very ancient literature and uh, this is our sacred tradition. This is a divine revelation which tells about the universe, about ourselves as, as souls. It tells about God and so on. And life went on. So, um, if you've ever been to India, in India practically everything has some sacred significance. I mean, the rivers, the mountains, the lakes, uh, the deserts. If you know the Mahabharata, we'll be talking about that later. It's one of the great historical, historical epics of India. So in the Mahabharata, it goes on all over North India, and even a little bit in South India. So practically everywhere in India is directly connected to an avatar, some incarnation of God, some sacred thing that happened. And so the sensation for people who have, for most people in India, especially in the Hindu tradition, what it feels like to be born there and grow up there. I wasn't born there, but um, projecting. But at least I've been there many times. What it feels like, is you're just living in this sacred space. Everything around you has some spiritual significance. And it's really the way people's minds work. And there's tremendous antiquity. We'll, in a few weeks we'll come to Puranas, Nitihasa, other genres of literature that have many stories. And the antiquity is just fantastic. It just goes back forever. There are these great cosmic seasons, these yugas we talked about. This is what it felt like. This is and and, and to, to be in India, and there is a tradition, thousands of years of great scholars of uh, commenting on sacred scriptures, commentaries on commentaries. So this is going on for thousands of years, and suddenly the Europeans come with their card, their business card first, and then they come with this. Meanwhile, in Europe, there's a revolution going on, which started with the Renaissance. Namely that, I mean, if you know, just very briefly, you have this uh, classical civilization in southern Europe, Greece and Rome, basically. Then Rome falls, you have the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, a name which was given to that period by the Renaissance people. So the Renaissance people could call that period the Dark Ages. The Middle Ages, because they're in the middle between two periods of real civilization, real culture, namely ancient classical civilization, which was extremely sophisticated intellectually and culturally, and then the Renaissance. And in between, whoops, in between you've got the Dark Ages. That was the Renaissance take on the Middle Ages. So in the Middle Ages, if you wanted to know like historical linguistics, why are there different languages in the world, there's a simple answer, the Tower of Babel. If you want to know the history of the world, uh, the Genesis. That's where the world comes from. And so people were emotionally and intellectually and spiritually absolutely invested in this. And so when this whole way of understanding reality began to unravel, which it did, even in the high middle ages, start to get philosophers, Thomas Aquinas, 
uh, the great theologian of Catholicism in his own time was a radical because he thought you can understand God by reasoning, by philosophy, by, so to speak, baptizing Aristotle. And so the Renaissance picks up steam. It goes into the 17th century, which is the scientific revolutions for Francis Bacon, Descartes, different people. And then Newton, Newton is like, blew everybody's mind because suddenly the universe was rational, was mathematical, which of course they thought proved the existence of God. But in any case, then this like unstoppable juggernaut of rationalism and science goes into the 18th century, skepticism, the French Revolution, the church is the problem, that this Middle Eastern tradition has kept us back, and actually now we're becoming scientific and rational. We're not Middle Eastern. So all these things are going on. Europe is being convulsed by all these intellectual and spiritual and religious revolutions, which also affected America. Thomas Jefferson was a accused of being involved in this as a deist, that he wasn't simply a good Christian. He had to, especially when he ran for office, he had to show what a good Christian he was. But anyway, he spent too much time in Paris as an ambassador. That was his problem. So then these Europeans were going through their own dramatic, traumatic in many cases, transformations. They come to India. And they suddenly run into this ancient civilization. But, and, and then something happens which shocks Europe. And that's what we're going to start talking about. It shocked Europe. It, it, it really, as, as someone, one scholar will say, here was a violent shock for Europe, something they found in India, and uh, it actually changed the course of European intellectual history. And it led directly into what is today called Indology, the academic study of Indian religion, which is just a child of this whole process. So I want you to know where this is all coming from and how it affected people who were from India and thought, we didn't have a problem till you guys came here. We know who we are. We know where we came from. We know we're very ancient. So anyway, I'll, that's the little preface. And uh, now the movie. Um, 1786. It's 1786. Jane Austen's 11 years old. And, uh, and, the U.S. Constitution is one year away. So this is 1786. In those days, if you know John Adams uh, or Thomas Jefferson, educated people were extremely educated. Like their casual reading was in ancient Greek, ancient Latin, French, German. That's what it meant to be an educated person back then. So Sir William Jones comes to Calcutta to become the governor of, the East, of East India for the East India Trading Company. Which, is, which rules that part of India. And he's a scholar, he's a linguist, and he gives a speech in 1786 to the uh, Royal Asiatic Society of uh, Bengal. And this is what he said, and this is, this is what literally blew the minds of, every, of everyone in Europe. He said, the Sanskrit language, the sacred language of India, the Sanskrit language, whatever may be its antiquity, is of a wonderful structure more perfect than Greek, more copious than the Latin, and Greek and Latin were the, the foundation of Western education, and more exquisitely refined than either, yet bearing to both of them a stronger affinity, both in the roots of verbs and the forms of grammar that could possibly have been produced by accident. There's no way that Sanskrit is so close to Latin and Greek by accident. That's impossible. Something else is going on here. Uh, so strong is the affinity, indeed, that no philologer, philologers used to be a very big thing. That means people that, as my 
professor at Harvard used to say it means people that read books very slowly. People used to, people used to read ancient books. Reading ancient books was like the way you got educated back then. So philologists would read ancient books and, and try to extract them, everything you could find out about their philosophy, material culture, and so on and so forth, history. So no philologer could examine them all three, Sanskrit, Greek, and Latin, without believing them to have sprung from some common source, which perhaps no longer exists. There is a similar reason for supposing that both the Gothic and the Celtic have the same origin with the Sanskrit, and the old Persian might be added to the same family. Now, in those days, language, race, and culture were kind of different aspects of the same thing. So imagine, for example, if some guy is the head of his local chapter, the Ku Klux Klan, and then finds out that you know, half his family comes from Africa, sub-Saharan Africa. So uh, Europe, in, you have to also understand that in those days, racism was absolutely respectable. It's just like nowadays it's respectable to be for your family, like my family is more important than other families, my country, my community. No one thinks that's immoral. So back then it was like my family, my community, my country, my race. Like, you know, be true to your school. Hitler, of course, changed all that. But before that, basically people all over the world were loyal to their race, the way we are loyal to our country. It was just considered normal and natural. And there, as I said, there hadn't been a Hitler. And, there hadn't, and, and even slavery was not really something that, that was just half beginning to happen. So anyway, so what was the reaction to this? One reaction was that it created a new intellectual field in Europe which became a super hot item, which was Indo-European studies. One of the reasons for this, in other words, they, they concluded that people from India, the ancient people of India and Europeans are somehow the same family, which is very shocking because they're not white. So how can we be in the same family? And ancient history was very compelling because it goes back to the Garden of Eden. They thought maybe there's a new Garden of Eden. Once you buy into evolution, it's like, well, what difference? Like I came from this primate or that, you know, E. coli or whatever, ultimately. But if you think that reality is coming top down, if you think reality is coming top down, then going back to your roots means finding God. Going back to your original, pristine, unspoiled relationship with God in some kind of garden, a golden age, a spiritual golden age. And so the Europeans suddenly thought, my God, what are our roots? How did this happen? So, now, Here's another quote. By the way, I'm quoting from a book which sort of the standard text on this, The Quest for the Origins of Vedic Culture, written by actually an old friend of mine. He wrote this while he was teaching at Harvard, now he's at Rutgers. And it, it's the, sort of the standards, but I'll be quoting from it. Uh, God, beat the clock. So, the extreme endophobic discomfort, extreme endophobic discomfort with the connection of Sanskrit with Greek and Latin was exemplified by the conviction of the Scottish philosopher Dougal Stewart, without knowing a word of the language, proposed that Sanskrit was not a cognate of Greek, it was Greek, borrowed by the wily Brahmins. The Brahmins <laughs> stole it from the Greeks because non-white people couldn't come up with a sophisticated ancient white language. This shows better than anything else how violent a shock was given by the discovery of Sanskrit, a shock to prejudices most deeply ingrained in the mind of every educated man. The most absurd arguments found favor for a time if they could only furnish a loophole by which to escape the unpleasant conclusion that Greek and Latin were the same 
kith and kin as the language of the black inhabitants of India. Clearly, the developing pressure to justify the colonial and missionary presence in India prompted the denigration of Indian civilization and the shunning of embarrassing cultural and linguistic ties. Because the whole intellectual engine behind the colonial missionary project was we are going around the world to save it. We're saving it for Christ. We're, we're civilizing the world. We're teaching barbarians to live like Europeans. God, we are such great guys. So, and suddenly, you find these people in India who have the sophisticated culture which is, has a family connection with your culture. So what did they do about this? There were all kinds of reactions. Now, just very quickly, because I'll... There were many different reactions based on the different movements in Europe at the time. For example, there were some people in Europe who were burnt out with the Christian church. They thought it was oppressive and holding people back. And so they thought, hey, ancient India is an antidote. This is, a, this is a, an alternative. Because we are Aryans, and somehow they, I mean, in other words, we come from this ancient European civilization. They're somehow connected to us. Maybe these are our ancestors, not Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob not the Palestinians, not Middle Eastern people, but these people who produce these very sophisticated literatures. So some people began to think of India as, the, as, as an alternative, a new Eden. That maybe the golden age was in India. Maybe that's where God's original revelation was. And then there was a huge backlash against that. Because, oh my, because the, most people were still Christians, and they said, no, this is actually demonic, this is monstrous. And for example, Hermann Oldenburg, a German Indologist in the 19th century. I remember, uh, he's a very famous Indologist from the mid-19th century. He said that, that the ancient Vedic literature was a case of barbaric priests worshipping barbaric gods. Which, somewhat insulting. So, now, as all these things were going on, as Europe progressed in its own intellectual evolution, it came down to a certain thing. Instead of just like decrying the Indians and saying, yeah, this is barbarism or blah, 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 they got down to real hardcore scholarly issues. And uh, the European scholars kind of made two moves to solve this problem of this family connection with these non-white Indians. Two basic moves. One move was to claim, as I, as I mentioned in another class, that actually, actually, this great literature, the Vedas and all that, this sophisticated civilization, this language, came from us. Because there was an Aryan invasion. White people, maybe from Central Asia or the Russian steppes or wherever, they actually came into India, brought the Sanskrit language, and then sort of, you know, got messy and sloppy and intermarried. They didn't maintain the racial purity, and so now we are coming. This is the second wave. In England, they used to really preach this. This is the second way we are coming to rescue our Aryan cousins or brothers, whatever, to finish the job. So that was one, that was one thing they wanted to do, is say that the Aryans, because the word Arya is from the, the old Rig Veda. It means a noble person, a cultured person. So the first move was to say, the Aryans aren't Indians. They went to India, but they're not Indians. So we can save our race, we can save this whole Indo-Aryan culture by saying that they came from out of India. They just intermarried. So India just kind of like benefited from it. And the indigenous people of India were actually much darker and uh, ignorant people and so on and so forth. And all the credit for this amazing civilization goes to us. That was one move. And then, but to make that move, 
You see, the, the ancient history of India, as one scholar puts it, got subsumed. Indians could no longer tell their own story because any proposal for a history of ancient India had to fit in with European ideas of what happened. So according to European comparative linguistics, historical linguistics, archaeology, philology, no Indian theory about their own origins was acceptable unless it fit in with the European version of European origins. So India sort of lost its right to independently write its own history. Because if Indians are originally from India, including people that spoke Sanskrit, Europeans are from India. And basically they said, we don't want to be from India. We don't want to be, we're European, we don't want to be from India, so we'll, maybe we'll like compromise. We're like halfway between India and Europe to Central Asia, so white people from Central Asia went both ways. So all these things are going on. There was a tremendous Indian reaction. The Indian reaction was, wait a second, this is all crazy. You militarily and politically took us over. Now you want to take away our sacred culture. Now you want to trash everything which is most dear to us and tell us we're not even from India and that someone, some white people brought the Vedas into India. So meanwhile, in India, there's a growing revolutionary movement against European colonialism. And this movement against European colonialism combines with this anti-European interpretation of Indian history like gasoline and fire. And so you get these two schools, you get these two battling schools, and uh, Hillary Rodriguez mentions this, he kind of sanitizes it, but actually it's a real battle that's still going on. Anyway, so what I want to do is I wanted to uh, look at some of the specific issues. Well, I mentioned the first thing is saying that the Aryans came from outside. The second point was to minimize the antiquity of India. Because if, if the Vedic culture came from like thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, it doesn't fit in with European history. And it has to fit European history because they have to be the ones that went to. By the way, there were different European agendas. The British, for example, basically took over India. So they had their own theory, which I just explained. The French also had colonies like in Pondicherry in India. They had a big colony. The southern Europeans, the Italians, for example, they could look to their own ancient past. They didn't need Indian. The Germans, it was the Germans, this gets into the Hitler connection, by the way. It was the Germans that didn't have colonies, didn't have ancient Greece and Rome. They had nothing. And so the Germans thought, hey, if you look at English culture, if you look at English history, they're all like, they're, they're mongrels, because they have like Celts and Welsh people and English people and people that came from... France, so they're, they're just like, they're like totally over-hybrid. And if you, if you look at the Southern Europeans, you know, they're kind of mixed in different ways too. But the Germans, here is a group of people of a pure race. Again, this is respectful back then. And so the Germans probably, it was probably Germanic people that brought the Vedas to India. And this end run around Southern Europe meant that actually Germanic people were the ones who brought all this stuff to India Germanic people were the cradle of civilization, and even ancient Roman Greece grew because of us and what we brought to India and later came back to southern Europe. So the Germans began to see themselves as like the cradle of civilization. And that's why Germans became very heavily invested in the Sanskrit studies. They were the main Sanskrit scholars of the 19th century. So all these different European agendas are going on simultaneously. Pro-church, anti-church, German, English. Everyone's got their agenda. It's interesting because Hillary says in his book that, uh, he, uh, that, what if, that scholars don't have an agenda, it's the Indians that have an agenda. Anyway, I quoted that. 
thought that was a, uh, an amazing thing to say. So, now, the second important, so what about the antiquity, the oldest Sanskrit book, everyone agrees, the oldest Sanskrit book is the Rig Veda. So how old is it? Now, the Europeans start to say it's not that old. It's not that old, so don't get excited, Indians. And it's now standard. If you read this, Hillary says it was completed, the Rig Veda was completed about 1,000 BCE. By 1,000. The Indians say, no, it, 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 it's much, much older than that. And this is one of the most uh, hotly debated points. Because if the Rig Veda is only 1,000 years old, it means Indians haven't been in India a long time, or the Vedic culture hasn't been there. It means all these sacred stories are not true. Now, the Europeans, I mean, there's a bit of sour grapes here because, um, because the Europeans were seeing their own sacred history, history being overthrown. Because of science and everything, they were starting to question the Bible and Bible chronology. Right? And so, here's a quote from the same William Jones. Either the first chapters of Genesis are true, or the whole fabric of our national religion is wrong. Another scholar said, Arguments principally founded on the highest assumptions of the Brahmins, could their extravagant claims for antiquity be substantiated, have a direct tendency to overturn the Mosaic system of Moses, and with it Christianity. In other words, Christianity was under siege by science, by, you know, by Darwin, by, by everyone was kind of like kicking Christianity because this whole revolution was going on, secular revolution. And then if, if the Vedic thing was that old, basically all of Christianity collapsed because, uh, yeah, because according to the Bible, the great flood ended and people started to populate the earth in 2350 BCE. So if the Vedas are too old, the story of Noah and the flood is wrong. And the whole thing goes out the window. Christian Europe collapses. So they have this huge vested interest in showing that the Vedas were not that old. So how, how do we get the late date, which, which Hillary, uh, Dr. Rodriguez quotes. So I'm going to go over that very quickly. How the Europeans figured out a way to take away the antiquity of Vedic civilization and make it much, much more recent for various agendas. Max Muller. Max Muller is probably the most famous scholar of India in the 19th century. And he came up with a date. The date that this book is repeating originally came from Max Muller. So I'll, I'll go very quickly over this. Uh, he started with uh, he started with a book, the, the Kathasari Saga, a book written about 1200 CE that mentions a guy named Katyayana. Now this is a book of ghost stories. It's not even a history book. It's a book of ghost stories. And in one of those stories, there's a guy named Katyayana, which is sort of a not extremely uncommon Sanskrit name back then. Now, there happened to be a grammarian named Katyayana about, maybe about 300, 400 BCE. So, Matt Blue said, well, what if this Katyayana is that guy? It's like, here's a Jack in this his ghost book. Maybe that's also a Jack that lived, uh, you know, 1,600 years ago. And they're the same. Anyway, so, if that's the same guy from 400 BCE, then... Uh, then we know that certain kinds of Sanskrit literature were being written back then. And then we, and then we have basically all these different, like you have the Vedic Samhitas, and then you have the Brahmanas, and then, I mean, to, for now, it's just there's different layers, like, almost like geological layers. There are different layers of literature, the older, more recent, more recent, by linguistic analysis. Like, you look at 
Chaucer's English, Shakespeare's English, modern English. So by language analysis, there's diff different layers of language. So he's saying that if we know this, to say like 400 BC, and there's an older layer of language, let's just say that's 200 years before, because maybe it took 200 years for language to go from here to here. And there's an older layer, another 200 years, you know, it's, and there's another older layer, let's give another 200 years. This process is called glottochronology, polyglots, person knows a lot of languages, glottochronology. And so this dating of the Veda is based on glottochronology, based on an assumption that maybe a guy named Katyaya in a ghost story is the same Katyaya 1,600 years ago, and maybe language change in India went on a certain, at a certain rate. Now the problem is that glottochronology is not accepted by linguists. That's one problem. Apart from the whole ghost story, Katyayana thing, which is extremely scientific, <laughs> here are some quotes on glottochronology. Glottochronology seemed very promising until it was pointed out that languages do not change at standard rates. Lithuanian, for example, preserves archa Lithuania has archaic Indo-European forms that are thousands of years old. They still have it today in Lithuania. In Egyptian records, you have a thousand-year gap, the language doesn't change. And then in, in uh, King Sargon of Assyria, I'm sure you all know about it, King Nebuchadnezzar, in, in Egyptian records, you have 2,000 years go by and the language doesn't change. In America, sometimes 100 years go by and the language does change. Chinese changes very slowly over, over 2,000 years. You apply these same grotto-chronological techniques to, say, Latin and Romance languages, and, and it's off by 50%. So, so Latin that was spoken, let's say 200 BCE, comes out at 1,000 or 1,200 of this era. In other words, it's rejected. No one accepts glottochronology, and yet dating of the Veda is based on this. Now, once this glottochronology started collapsing, they looked for other things. Like, for instance, now here's another one. Uh, this is almost as much fun. They have the, the word Krishna in, in Sanskrit also means dark or black, so you have Krishna ayas, which means a dark metal. And so scholars wanting to take away antiquity from India said, well, this must be iron, dark metal, because there are no other dark metals, right? Well, wrong. But anyway, they said, well, this must be iron. It doesn't say iron, they just thought, well, that's iron. Let it be iron. So then, uh, we know that smelted iron, the, the oldest uh, documented case of smelted iron in that area of India, is about 1500 BCE. And so we have some texts that, that mention smelted iron. So therefore, again, you know, the, the Rig Veda can't be that old. It can't be thousands and thousands of years old. It can't be older than maybe, well, well uh, Hillary says, finished by 1000 BCE. Now the problem is, that if you look at iron ore, which they used to make things out of, it goes back thousands of years more. And it doesn't say smelted here. It doesn't even say iron. It just says a dark metal. So now it's not only iron, it's smelted iron. Which is very interesting. And Yeah, but there are other kinds of dark metal they found in, in, in sites that would go back even, even farther, thousands of years. So again, these are the kinds of arguments. And, and Hillary Rodriguez says in his book, he's been very conservative in taking, like, you know, very safe arguments and with no agenda. Now, <laughs> there are other ways. He's not a specialist in this area. And, uh, 
Now, there is some evidence, there is some evidence that the Vedas are in fact much older. And one of the most powerful bits of evidence, which is scientific, is that in the Rig Veda, uh, in, in later Hinduism, the um, in later Hinduism, the main river in Hindu civilization is the Ganges, the Ganga. How would you read the Rig Veda? The main river is the Saraswati, the Saraswati River. Now, uh, the Rig Veda gives a gives a, a, a very clear geographic description that in uh, in India, I don't, I mean, I should have a map here, but I can I can do it very quickly. Uh, let's see, Peninsular India, and it goes up, and so this is now basically Pakistan here, and so on. So there's an Indus River coming down like this, and there's a whole series of rivers coming down here. And so the Rig Veda mentions all these different rivers, and they're all there. They're all there in the order given, except the Saraswati. The Saraswati's not there. So, so, in other words, let's say like right about here, for example, there should be, it describes it as this huge river, this mighty river, and the Vedic civilization is actually built around the Saraswati River. It just wasn't there. So Western people had no problem with this. Well, it's, it's just mythology, of course. The only problem is they found the Saraswati. Apparently, the Saraswati dried up. The Saraswati River dried up, and you can even trace it by uh, satellite photography. They, very, they see very clearly what happened. And let's say this is the Saraswati right here. There was another river, I think the Vipas, which is feeding into it, into the Saraswati. But, but at a certain point, the, the, this river here made a right turn somewhere else. The Saraswati was deprived of its water and eventually dried up. And you can see all this by satellite photography. It's all very clear. And where, and where this dried up riverbed is, or this mighty river, is exactly where the Rig Veda says it's supposed to be. Now, you can also trace and see that once this river changed its course, the river it now fed into got wider. So it's, it's all very clear that you had this river coming down, and it changed course, went to another river, that river became wider, this river dried up, you can still see this huge riverbed by satellite photography. Now, the problem here for Western scholarship and for Hillary's theory is that the Saraswati River, where all the Aryans live, the people of the Rig Veda, they're, they're living around the Saraswati River, that river dried up uh, 2000 BCE. 2000 BCE, and the Rig Veda wasn't supposed to be written until a thousand years later. So, not only that, the time when this river was really moving, I mean, really was a big river, because the Rig Veda describes it again and again. There's like dozens of verses describing the Saraswati as a goddess, as this mighty river. And the Saraswati was a mighty river between five and 7,000 years ago. And it's right on the money where it was supposed to be. Now, what's interesting about that is that Hilary Rodriguez says that here's all the evidence. So let me read some quotes. Here, first Hillary. The ancient Vedic scriptures refer to the Saraswati River, whose existence is thought by some scholars to be a myth, while others regard the Gagarhakra, which is what's left of it, to be the Saraswati. Here, that, that's from Hillary. Here's a quote from a specialist in this book, the standard reference book on the subject. There is general agreement among scholars that all this evidence demonstrate, demonstrates that it can be stated with certainty that the present Gagar Hakra is nothing but a remnant of the Rig Vedic Saraswati, which was the lifeline of the Indus civilization. So contemporary scholarship says, there's no question about it, that's the Saraswati, 
Hillary is saying, well, some people say that. Anyway, I mean, it's still a nice book. He just, there's just a few points that I have to... Now, regarding agendas, uh, let me see. I don't, there's so much... Now, by the way, also, I, th I think this book, which is generally a good book, and, I, and it's not a bad book, it's just on a few points that kind of, uh, I, I think he drops the ball. The idea that mainstream scholars say what I'm saying. Here's a quote from uh, Klaus Schermeyer, Klaus Klaustermeyer, another old friend of ours, who's very much a mainstream scholar who, who was working at the uh, Institute for Hindu Studies at Oxford University in England, which is, which is a mainstream school. And he says, in most textbooks, beginning of Hinduism is identified with the invasion of India by the Aryans, as in our textbook, an invasion or a migration. What the same textbooks do not mention is that the so-called Aryan invasion theory is based on pure speculation and that there is absolutely no archaeological or literary evidence for it. It's a 19... So, uh, so, in other words, what I'm giving you is not like an exotic or sort of far out theory of something. It's very much mainstream scholarship. This is from a, a, a very well-known introduction to Hinduism. So, regarding agendas, uh, here's a quote from Jim Schaefer, who is one of the, by far one of the leading archaeologists, he's an American, American, one of the leading archaeologists of South Asia for many, many years. He's very, very well-known among archaeologists. And he says that Ideas of invasions, diffusions, and conquests have obscured and hindered invest investigation into the region, South Asia's indigenous cultural processes. To fully understand and appreciate the South Asian archaeological record, alternative explanatory frameworks must be considered. The reason I mention this is because Hillary says, I, I love this one, this is on page 10. He's a nice guy, but it's just, uh, I have to, you know, it's my duty to point these things out. When dates cannot be established with certainty, there are cultural, political, and religious agendas that play roles in the attribution of dates. For instance, a person who reads scriptures literally, I mean, my God, then who would want to do that? A person who reads scriptures literally may choose to believe that, may choose to believe that certain events took place long before historians would place these events based on the evidence at their disposal. In other words, Historians, they just look at the evidence. Religious people, they have other agendas. But in the case of the Saraswati, the scholars say it is very ancient, and actually, it's the other people who say it's more recent that have the agenda, and I could talk a lot about what their agenda is. And here's Jim Schaefer, one of the leading archaeologists of South Asia, saying that there's nothing but agendas in Western scholarship. There are so many agendas in Western scholarship that we can't do our work. Because every time we try to study India archaeologically, we're getting bombarded with the latest faddish theory and agenda and all these things. We can't do archaeology there. There's so many agendas of Western scholarship. So, again, I just wanted to sort of a level playing field, which is... One last thing I want to say in my waning time here for lunch, and that is that um, while all this was going on, something else shocking happened around 1920, they discovered this amazing civilization uh, up here. What is now Pakistan, the Harappan civilization, you should have read about it, Mohenjo-Daro, and so on. Now, one thing, I don't know if it's mentioned in the book, is that, uh, well, first of all, it was a very sophisticated civilization. This was a real trophy. 
because the Vedic people thought, if this was Vedic, my God, because on the one hand, you have the Rig Veda, which is very sophisticated literature with no archaeological civilization, and then you get an archaeological civilization with no literature, because they can't decipher the seals. There's no language. No one even knows who these people were. This, go, this goes for thousands of square miles, I'm like 500, you know, thousands of square miles, or hundreds of thousands of square miles, a very uniform culture, no archaeological evidence of, of big armies, of invasions, of prisoners of war, extremely peaceful, sophisticated civilization. Everybody wants it. Everybody wants to claim it. Now, there's a lot of evidence that it was Vedic, the evidence that it's Vedic, cultural continuity, fire altars, uh, and the fact that, oh, and here's the main evidence that might have been Vedic, is that it turns out it's not really just, here's the Indus River. A lot of these um, archaeological sites in the Harappan civilization on the sorry, Indus River here, but then it turns out there's many, many times more of these same sites, same culture, on the Saraswati River. That there's, there's like 300 sites on the Indus River, but it turns out there's like 1,400 settlements on the Saraswati River. So it turns out that most of the people in this ancient civilization were not on the Indus, they were on the Saraswati, which happens to be the river of the Rig Veda, which happens... Anyway, I think you can connect the dots here. So, uh, as far as this Indus Valley civilization, that's still being debated. And the ultimate thing is, in terms of hardcore empirical science, you just can't say. It's not that historians being sober and conservative just look at the evidence and some religious people get all excited about their books. It's not like that at all. The evidence is really... There's archaeoastronomical evidence that Ring Veda is much older because the Veda talks about, for example, something happened at a certain season when stars were in a certain position. And then if you do the math and figure out when was the zodiac in that position, there's something called precession. The Earth wobbles on its axis and therefore... Uh, I mean, very simply, it's called precession. Some of you may know what this is that uh, when you look up at the sky at night and, and the zodiac, the constellations sort of rise like the sun and come over your head. And so at different times of year, like solstices, equinoxes, the sun rises in a particular constellation, or the moon is in a particular constellation. And because of this precession, uh, gradually, it, it takes about, I think, 37, in 37 or 27,000 years, the moon actually goes through the whole zodiac because of the Earth's wobbling. So therefore, if you know where the moon was or where the sun was at a particular time of year, you can actually find out how long ago that would have been. And so when you do that, archaeoastronomical calculation turns out the Rig Veda also is much older. So you have archaeoastronomical uh, evidence. You have the Saraswati River exactly where it was supposed to be. And we couldn't find it until we had satellite photography. The Rig Veda said where it was. It was a mighty river. There's more Indus valleys settlements than the Indus River, and so on and so on and so on. And the, in the western side, there were like innumerable agendas. There were innumerable agendas. Therefore, the conclu my conclusion is not you have to believe everything you hear on one side or the other, just to know that this is, I mean, you know, this game is still going on. It's like, we haven't heard the buzzer yet. And uh, this is still going on. It's an ongoing debate, and uh, it's very interesting. And for the Indian side, they're trying to regain control of their own history, their own identity, their own roots, and their own sacred culture. And the Western side, they're trying to get at the truth and science and all that, so... Any questions on all these things? Yes? I should have left more time for questions. Yes, Ronald? Um, in this book, he says that uh, from the archaeological evidence for the Indus Valley civilization, they found 
that the dead were buried in coffins? How do you explain that? Like, well, they just, I guess they built coffins and put dead bodies in it. Um, like it may not be what Hindus always do nowadays, mm-hmm. but again, Vedic culture and Hindu culture are not the same thing. Not the same thing. There's just one little detail in the book. It says that Shiva is not attested in the Vedas. That that's another faddish theory. Therefore, Shiva, one of these, one of the most important Hindu gods, we'll talk about later, probably came from some uh, indigenous pre-Vedic or non-Vedic source. But actually, in the Rig Veda, it does talk about Rudra, R-U-D-R-A. And uh, I just looked back uh, yesterday in my in, in a Rig Veda text by someone who's a specialist in the Rig Veda, and they said, yeah, Rudra is Shiva. So also the idea that Shiva's not... So there's a lot of... Anyway, little things. Yes? Why didn't the Indians um, like back, up their, back up their philosophy back, back then when the Europeans were coming to change it? Why didn't they... Why didn't they uh, back up their own philosophy or their, their beliefs? Well, they did. Actually, the 19th century, when we're talking about that in the 19th, toward the end of the course, the 19th century, there were many very powerful movements in India to fight against European Because gr- the Europeans sort of came on gradually. At first it was business, and then it became missionary work, and then it became a full, an all-out intellectual assault. And so, and so the, the Indians did respond, actually, and they were powerful. Respond. In fact, modern Hinduism really, you can't really understand modern Hinduism without understanding it as sort of shaped by the response to modernity in Europe. Yes, back there. Um, is, uh, is that Natasha? Yeah. Is the Ganges um, cited, or is anything written in the Rig Veda about the Ganges? It's a good question. I, I think it may be mentioned. I have to look that up, but it's, uh, but it, it's not the main river that it becomes later. Okay. But that's a, that's a very good question. Because if they know So 
swastika making well-being. So Hitler used these uh, Aryan symbols, the word Aryan and the swastika and all this stuff, because he was, he was sort of like playing into that idea that the Germans were the source of civilization and the source of the Vedic civilization. And therefore, the Aryan civilization had to purify itself from its intellectual and religious domination by the Middle East. And it, you know, it obviously is a pretty crazy thing, to say the least.